0: Please welcome. He's put so much effort in, into this, so give him an extra round of applause, please, yeah. for Jason Bernard. Yeah. And uh, Chaz has been with us before, and we, we were chatting about this, and um, just before lockdown, wasn't it? When yeah. He yeah, came up, yeah, yeah? and um, we were chatting and sort of said, "Oh, would you really like to have back?" And I said I'd love Chaz to come back. So he's very kindly agreed. He's driven up from London today, and we love him already. Chaz
1: Jenkel. So um, I think one of the themes, looking at your career, Chaz, is just just an amazing range of musical styles that you've been involved with a- a- across your career. And be- before we dip into that it'd be useful to get an idea of in your formative years i assume kind of around the 1960s what were your influences who were you passionate about when you got into music <clears throat> the
2: beatles obviously yeah. um the kinks um that's, when i was i was born in 52 1952 so um, when I was about uh, seven, um, I started playing guitar and, and then went on to piano a little bit later. And then I was listening to a lot of uh, records, like the Beatles and the Shadows. They, they were you know what I listened to and religiously, basically. I loved all that. I loved the style. I like the Beatles jackets and everything, the, the whole. I bought into it. When I was about 14, um, I was on holiday. In, in Spain and one of my cousins had a little record player portable record player and she was playing 45's and one of them was um, a Lee Dorsey record actually um, working down a coal mine and the B side was Get Out My Life Woman and I, I had this um, iconic drum intro that went boom bah, boom, boom, bah, boom, bah, boom 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 and I thought what's that what's that and it turns out it was the backbeat, ba, boom, boom, ba. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. It might sound very arcane or sort of like, like, odd, but it really connected with me. And I thought, I love the Beatles. I love what they were doing. It was so melodic. The inventiveness was incredible. But I think I was missing a heavier beat, and um, there it was. And so at that, from then onwards, I, I was really turning my eyes towards America and Afro-American music as much as I was listening to the Small Faces. As that still continued. Jimi Hendrix, all these rock artists, Free, I was listening to. But also, um, I was really digging into, um, I think you'd call it Afro-American music.
1: Yeah. Is, that, is that like people like Sly Stone? and that's Yeah, that particularly
2: Sly Stone. I mean, Sly and the family Stone were a huge influence on me. I remember one particular occasion... I'd already started getting into Sly and um, there was a little record shop off Charing Cross Road in, in, the, in the West End of London and uh, you, it was the days where you could go in and ask them to play a 45 and you'd get a pair of headphones and you'd sit and stand on one side of the counter listening to... In, actually, it was a little booth. You'd listen to a record that you might or might not buy and uh, he'd just put out a, a single called Thank You and... Um, was it called Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself? I can't remember. It was just called Thank You. Anyway, so I listened to it. I didn't really get it, but I thought, well, I'd better buy it. I'd better buy it anyway, because I'm up here. And uh, I, I paid my money, took it home, put it on my little record player at home. thought, I'm not sure about this, and played it again. Oh, I don't know. Give it one more shot. And I went, oh, my God. Oh, this is it. The Holy Grail. And in effect, what it was, it was just a, a groove that cycled, but it had everything. It was just... The, the light bulb went on. And I thought, I love this. I love this. So then I kind of followed Sly for quite a while. His different records, his different songs. And um, But as I say, it, it was just part of what I was interested in. It was, wasn't everything. Um, you know, as I've grown older, I've, I love... I love particularly romantic classical music, the era... Of, of, of classical music. Um, I love jazz. I love a lo- I love music from a lot of different sources. And um, uh, you just mentioned a moment ago, I'm, I'm, I'm eclectic. And I, I am. That's the reason I am. Because I just love music from all over the world. And not only just in our era, you know, from, say, even three 300 years ago. And I think what I've realised as I grow older is pe- people... They don't fit into genres. You know, they don't sit into blocks and will only listen to an, a, a certain kind of music. I've never met anybody who just only listens to country or only listens to, um, you know, a genre. We're we're much freer than that. Those are marketing ploys to to, to guide people in a record store. But I think, generally speaking, our, our tastes are really broad.
1: So. W- and, and that, again, that, that range of music mm. is is really fascinating because some of your first recorded work at least on a, I think it might have been a major label, was, was what, what is known as Progressive Rock, the, the band Byzantium, yeah, which is a real contrast to the, the, the Sly Stone mm-hmm. end of things. So how, how did that work? How did you get involved and how, how did that progress?
2: I was a guitar player. I mean, I played guitar and piano. And um, I'd met these guys. They were, I would say, more into people like um, Jefferson Airplane and the kind of, the more um, hippie hippie culture. I had really long hair then, and, and, you know, when I realised there was an issue, was we were playing um, Dingwalls one time, Dysantium, and they were all wearing jean jackets, you know, denim, clad in denim, long hair, and I'd just been up to a shop off Carnaby Street, and I thought I'd got myself an outfit that looked like something like Sly might wear, Sly Stone. It, it, it had no sleeves, and it was like white satin with red satin inserts with all kind of, like, coloured bits on it, right? And I turned up at the gig, and I looked like, more like a member of Shawadawaddy. Like I, right? It had nothing to do with Sly at all, and they're all standing there in their denim, and I looked like I was in the wrong venue, you know. (laughs) And then I realised at that moment, hmm, I think maybe we're going in different directions here, you know. And um, so that led to me thinking, actually, yeah, I, I don't know. But we did stay together for, and we made a couple of albums together by Zantium. But I was looking for something else as well.
1: Because there's an interesting period where Hmm. you, you left. Byzantium, and there was this moment where I think you you, was it that your parents wanted you to get a a proper job because you things weren't working out with music at the time.
2: Yeah, that's true. My dad was a you know great man and supported me. I have to say that you know he he had a garage and he lent my brother and my sister and myself cars, you know, from the age of seventeen. And actually, without that, I wouldn't have been able to travel around and particularly later go and visit Ian stay late and come back and all of that. You know, a car was actually gold dust to anybody, any young musician. And most people didn't have that. So I was very grateful and, and I was helped in that way by my dad. Um, so, sorry, what was your question?
1: It's more about reflecting on the, the end of Byzantium and, and you ended up having to get a... Was it John Lewis you ended up working at? <laughs> No wonder I've forgotten
2: the question. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still, I'm still trying to get over it. Yeah, yeah. No, I did. I worked at John Lewis Lighting Department. It was like, it, you know, it was like, you know, like an episode of Are You Being Served? In there, it was, it was hilarious. You know, it was, um, it was quite a, a, a gay environment actually. Um, yeah, it was. Um, one day, um, one of the assistants, a girl, came up. She said, she said, Chaz. She said, um, Terry wants to have a word with you. And I said, Oh, really? And I looked across the, you know, the, above the lampshades and Terry goes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was a bit naive and I thought, he must be talking to someone behind, behind me. So I looked, it was just a wall behind me. So I said, I, I dipped my head, you know. And, and there were many incidents like that, you know, uh, weird stuff. going. <laughs> it was quite progressive, I suppose. Um, and, and then after nine months of being there, my mum realized i was i was actually dying on my feet there you know this wasn't the place for me but it was actually a lesson to me right if you want to be a musician get on with it you know because i was still living at home rent free but my life was really going nowhere and that's why they said get yourself a proper job and um other department stores had turned me down but john lewis for some reason accepted me and um yeah i did my apprenticeship well that that's where i worked and then Jonathan Kelly's outside. Jonathan Kelly, you mentioned he was a great Irish um, songwriter. He offered me a gig. He had one gig in Dublin. And uh, so that was my way out of John Lewis. And
1: just the one gig. Not at all. One no,
2: gig. no, just the one gig. and uh, But that was it. I was, at, you know, I was getting paid. And that was really what my dad, my, my parent, my dad in particular, wanted to see was, well, when are you going to make some money out of this? And... Um, yeah.
1: So after Jonathan Kelly there's a, there's a moment where was it that you were invited to play keyboards with Kilburn and the High Roads?
2: Yeah. I mean so I'm, my parents bought me a, um, gave me some money. I bought a Wurlitzer electric piano and um, and I bought it from Morris Plaquet in, um, in Shepherds Bush in London and I said to the the manager of the shop, he said, if anybody needs a keyboard player, give him... and I wrote my number on a little piece of paper and um, I gave it to the manager. And the next day the guitar player from Kilburn and the High Roads came in and he said, Oh, you know, he said to the manager, Oh, our um, our keyboard players just left the band. And he said, Oh, funny enough, uh, this his bloke came in yesterday, he left his he bought a piano and he left his telephone number. So um, give him a call. And I got a call, and the next night a well, f- couple of nights afterwards, um, the Kilbans, as they were called then, were playing at the Greyhound pub, a, a, a big pub, music pub in London. He said, come down. So I said, all right, thank you. So I went down and watched the Kilbans. Crazy ga- a band it was. It was like, I didn't even, even know if I liked it, actually. It was um, just weird. Loud, very assertive. It was like, if you could imagine a band in a Fellini movie... They would be the guys. That would be the right band for right. Uh, Ian had a Tommy Cooper fez on. <laughs> uh, the sax player was a dead ringer for Frank Zappa, um, and they all had something strange about them going on, you know. After the gig um, in this pub, and it, 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 they went down very, very well. Um, I just <clears throat> was sort of in a hip, hypnotized state, and I went up onto the stage was going down the, the tunnel that joined the stage to the dressing room, and I'm halfway down there, and the roadie on stage is packing gear up. He says, here, mate, where are you going? He said, if you want to see the band, go round the front way. I asked skipper. so I ran off, jumped off the stage, went round the side, the, the doorway next to the stage, went behind the stage, going towards the dressing room, and it's like, it looked like a Turkish bath. I mean, like there was steam all coming out of the room, and there was one guy who, who had his eye on the door, sitting down and as i approached he said Ian mate do i know you well fuck off then <laughs> that was ian's opening opening line to me right? so i'm standing there like oh jesus christ now what you know i'm paralyzed basically but then anyway, when i turned around to leave the dressing room and then ed spate the guitar player who'd been into the morris placade two days earlier said oh hello mate Are you Chaz?" and i went yeah and he went oh Nice to meet you. <laughs> and um, I was invited to a rehearsal the next day. And I, I got the gig. And I got the gig on, on piano. But they didn't know I played guitar. Well, Ian didn't know. And that was, didn't happen for, say, six months' time after that. That um, I, I mentioned, um, hey, you
1: know, I, brought, I think I just brought a guitar to a rehearsal. <laughs> so that was nice so when did you start when did you start collaborating with ian on with his lyrics so the kilbans at that
2: point were right a huge pub band and but ian was i think was getting tired of it and also the music they were playing was this kind of hybrid of rockabilly i don't know what it what it was it was loud and it was assertive and passionate but it didn't really have a groove, you know, it, like, it lacked something that I, I wanted to hear in it. So I said to Ian, listen, hey, do you, write, do you want to write some songs together? And he went, oh, brilliant, yeah, I'd love to. So he stopped taking on gigs, and we started writing together. And um, I can't remember exactly in what order it came, but pretty soon after we started writing together, um, and this used to happen in his flat overlooking the Oval Cricket Ground in Kennington, he had a flat there, and I had my—I'd installed my piano there, so I didn't have to take it backwards and forwards. And uh, I used to turn up at his place. There was a trestle table, and he had a little Olivetti typewriter. And if I turned up, there'd be a pile of lyrics, pile, pile of lyrics. And it was my job to sort of sift through them and, you know, and work on something. And one day, I, you know. Um, and time and time, I'd, I'd come along, and there'd be Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll sitting on, you know, on top. And I thought, how do you get a melody out of Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll? It's a great title, but you know, I didn't have, know where to start. So I used to tuck it under the other lyrics and, um, you know, <laughs> and have a go at something else. And, um, and, it, and then I'd turn up again. There it would be again on the top. And say, oh, Jesus, I thought, Jesus, I don't know. But anyway, one day, I turn up, and he goes, here, Chaz. He says, uh, how about this? bum, 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 ba, bum, I thought, well, that sounds good, because he didn't usually offer up musical ideas to me, you know. I, obviously, loads of lyrics, but not, you, you know, he didn't give me lots of ideas like that. So I thought, oh, this is good, right, yeah, great. Right. Okay, so, all right, this, we need a bridge here. So I, I put in the do, 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 do to his lyrics. And um, pretty soon after that... Um, Well, at the same time, Ian and I had started demoing material um, at a studio in Wimbledon called Alvic, which was run by Al and Vic. (laughs) (laughs) Alvic. It's imaginative, isn't it? (laughs) Anyway, so... um, And Ian was playing drums, and I was playing everything else, you know, keys, guitar, guitar, um, bass. Not particularly well at the time. I mean, it wasn't that proficient. And one day, Vic... Says to us, he says, Chaz. He says, he said to us, he said, listen, I know this great bass player and drummer. Why don't you, you know? They they're hiring themselves out for sessions. Why don't you give them a go? And um, he said, Yeah, sure. So Charlie, Charles, and Norman Watry uh, came down, and um, we 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 rehearsed. Um, well, well, we recorded demos of three songs. One was. Um, I think, it was, I think it was Sweet Gene Binson. I think so. But one of the songs was um, Blockheads. Blockheads. <laughs> and um, on the playback, it, it, it was just kind of simple kind of recordings, but on the playback, Ch- Charlie Charles is looking at the lyric and of Ian's uh, of, for, for Blockheads, and it says, you must have seen parties of Blockheads with shoes like dead pig's noses, right? And he looks down at his footwear, and he goes, Eerie, and that's me. And Norman, quick as a flash, says, "Yeah, we're the blockheads." High fives all around. And the the lyric, the the the, the, the name of the band has come now from the from the lyric. We became the blockheads. And um, but at that point, we 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 hadn't made new boots and panties. We were just that's where we were at. But one of the things we did do was go and record Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. So we recorded that. And it went. Did it did very well in the indie charts, very well. And then one day, I'm round at Ian's place once again, writing songs. And Ian says, "Do you want a cup of coffee?" And I went, "Oh, yeah, love one." And he said, he put on a record. You know, to keep me entertained whilst he was out the room. And I'm writing, you know, trying to fiddle around with a, a lyric that's on this trestle table. And something sounded familiar from this record. And um, the album was. Turned out it was the chain, Change of the Century by Ornette Coleman, Ornette Coleman, and there was a song on it called Rambling, and there was a bass solo in it. It was bum boom, 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 boom bum boom This was made. <laughs> this, this was made in the 60s, right? So I'm sitting there, and I'm just trying to write something else, you know. Like, I thought, I think, where have I heard? Th- <laughs> where have I heard this before? What, what's that? Oh my God! It's the riff from Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll what the hell, and I look up, and he was standing in the doorway from the kitchen with two cups of coffee, with a grin from ear to ear, and I went, you so-and-so, man. Anyway, he felt that apologetic about it, and uh, he got in touch with, with somehow, I still don't know to this day how he did it, but he tracked them down, Charlie Hayden, Don Cherry, and um, they were playing in Japan. He actually sent them a postcard. And he got a postcard back saying, don't worry, Ian, this is not our music. And, um, oh, you know, like um, a major lawsuit was avoided. And, uh, yeah. And um, I think Reb was saying to me, he, he was very interested in this this, this story. And um, my feeling is, and it hasn't been proven, but I think these songs at that... Da, 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 da I've heard Clifton Chenier, who's a great um, New Orleans accordionist, playing a riff very, very similar to that. So my theory is it's come from France, France-French um, folk music. I've, I wouldn't be surprised if you heard it originally, like, a hurdy-gurdy, you know... You know, by some bloke, you know, in a French village. <laughs> But that—that's that, mere speculation.
1: <laughs> well, that—that's the perfect link to uh, play a little bit of the uh, promo video for *Sex and uh, Drugs and Rock and Roll*, and we'll ju- we we'll just be playing uh, snippets uh, in this first half mainly. <laughs> and in terms of collaborating with Ian, uh, the the I- the ideas for the the songs. Um, seem to come from such a a wide range of sources, but um, hit me with your rhythm stick, that came from, was it apart from um, Wake Up, Make Love to me?
2: Yeah, yeah, it did actually. Um, I'm sure a lot of people here have heard the story, so uh, forgive me, but um, yeah. So I'd been, you know, well, that was a few years after that. Um, So that was obviously the first, I think that was our first single, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. We went on to record um, New Boots and Panties after that that album, which is sitting there. But then after that, um, we did and we toured that. We did a great tour on the back of that. But then um, Ian had rented a house in Kent, and uh, I went down there one day. And um, in the living room, he had a he'd set up a drum kit and a Fender Rhodes electric piano. And he had a little drum machine, which is um, a Roland CR78, which is a kind of classic drum machine that had lots of kind of um, Latin Latin rhythms on it. Like... You could slow it down. You could do all kinds of stuff with it. Anyway, Ian was using it as like a metronome. And so he was playing... He was just playing his drums, like a very solid beat. And... I came down and he's just jamming along, playing the drums. In love to play the drums, it had a very you know strong sense of rhythm, and I just started jamming along with the, just playing a little motif with him. I was going diga 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 just trying to get into this groove. And he didn't really go much further than that that day. But I thought I said good night, bye bye, and off I went home. And I listened the following day. It was something that intrigued me about the outro of "Wake Up and Make Love," which is on that album, which he recorded, you know, a few months earlier. And I do a piano solo right at the end. I go, and it goes sort of something like, and I thought, why do I like it? And I thought, I actually, what it is, it's that little pickup just before I play. it, I go, so I thought, ha! Ah, if I take that little you know, it's just like a little thing and I put it on the front of the riff I had with Ian that I'd been playing two days ago at his house. I'll get bap ba digga digg-g diggy digga digga and ba digga so I went Hey, this is cool, you know. So I called up Ian and I said, Ian, you've got to hear this and he said, Yeah, come down So I went down there and he'd moved the piano oh no, actually he had an acoustic piano in the garage and um, so I go in there and he, he'd written out a lyric very succinct, it was only three verses and a chorus, which was very unusual for Ian, because usually it was kind of pages of lyrics, and one of my jobs was to edit it, you know, but anyway, in this instance, it was just three verses and a chorus. He said, I'm going to the house, I'll see you soon. So I said, right, okay. So 20 minutes later, I had it, you know, like, just put some chorus, you know, like different chords for the chorus, and you know, and shaped it up, and um, a couple of days later, he invited the blockheads down, we rehearsed it, and then a day or so later, we went. the day or so later, we went to the workhouse where we'd recorded new boots and panties, and uh, which was Manfred Mann's studio. And uh, we recorded it. We recorded the song, and we did, I think, seven takes of it, seven versions of it. But it was take two that became the ma- that we used as the master tape for "Hit Me with Your Rhythm Stick." Yeah.
1: And and the single got a lot of. Um, of radio play, and but it, I think originally it was held off before it did climb to the top. It, originally it was held off by YMCA, I think. Did, was that is that the case?
2: Well, yeah, I, I, is I sometimes it. get for, uh, I forget it, you know, because well then Bright Eyes knocked us off. You know, so it was YMCA. <laughs> we were sandwiched between <laughs> YMCA and Art Carfunkel, I think. But we were we were, the, we were the, the filling in the sandwich, yeah. <laughs> but we were there for one week, you know, or two weeks. But it was just coming back because it was really true. When we were in the studio recording "Rhythm Stick," I it, I just was convinced it was a hit, and I called my mum up from the studio and said, "Mum, we've just we've just recorded our first number one." Wow. I mean, I knew it. it. Just had it written all over it because, in a way, it just brought everything together, you know, um, and. But besides that, we, we had a, a fantastic support from audiences, particularly university and college audiences were really behind us and we were on a roll. So, you know, timing was fantastic, to, to, you know, for, for that record. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, let's play the, uh, the official music video for Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick. <clears throat> <sighs>
2: And we still play it every night when the blockheads go out. And um, it's developed, it's evolved. In fact, the band, particularly Norman Wattroy, the bass player, hates this video, just for the record, because it's not in sync with what he's playing. It's not the bass he was playing. And um, it's shown a lot, <laughs> that one. But, he, you know, so musos are partic- particular about what they, you know, how they're depicted on film.
1: And for a best part, best part of a year you you were one of the biggest bands in britain easily mm. you you were selling hundreds of thousands of records yeah. i mean what what was it well it's the obvious question How, was it just um, was it what was it like it was it was heady
2: yeah yeah it was it was you could you could get caught up in the euphoria of it if you wanted to but you knew ultimately it was a fiction. It's a fiction to believe that you're any greater than any other human being in the world is. Is a fiction. It's it's, it's a the competition is created by um, the industry. Um, and it's great, enjoy it, but then move on. And um, so that's my kind of memory. I loved it, I was so happy it was there, but I don't know how put plaques on the wall or anything like that because it's you're cow to the industry, you know, and um, yeah, so I don't do that, but I'm very grateful for the, um, you know, for, for that it went to number one. That was fantastic because I, I think at the time it was a killer track, and um, when we play it at the, at the, at the, at the, climax of our shows, when we play even to this day, it, it just gets people up the, on their feet, and um, I think people remember when, where they were when they first heard it like they do when they hear Plasto Patricia on that on that album, you know. <laughs> you know, say no more.
3: <laughs>
1: yeah. How did Ian deal with that, that fame and, and, and the situation? Because he, he, well, he was a bit of a drinker, wasn't he? Uh,
2: yeah, yeah, but, you know, there was a lot of drugs. It was... De rigueur to do drugs in the seventies most if you didn 't do it you're the odd man out you know i 'm not saying necessarily hard drugs, but everybody was doing a bit of smoking about hash or you know and um yeah people were there wasn't the same there wasn 't the same sort of restraint that there is now. people are wised up a bit you know because they they know they can 't carry on living like that um, and live to an, a ripe old age but um I think there was a bit of a sort of thing that you know, if you if you want to be a rock and roll star, that you you don't live past about twenty eight. You know, so you might as well get it in. You know, that's there was a kind of fatalistic, slightly, slightly that going on. Um, and in, I don't want to single him out because look, we we're all having a drink. But six o'clock in the evening, you know, he could call me, and you know, I could hear the tinkle of ice in the in the in the in the, the glass at the other end of the telephone, and uh, he would be a different person at that point. He would. It would give him Dutch courage. Um, he could also—I've been in—I was in public events with him quite a few times when he would just, you know, be very embarrassing because um, drink would affect him in a way that he—he would—he would let out his anger. He could do, and you wouldn't want to be in the firing line. Um, and I'd never really criticize him at the time. But he could all get—he get out of order. He could totally get out of order. You know, he could—he could insult somebody, and then they couldn't. You know, people would be afraid to hit him because um, he was disabled. Ian had a polio, so he, in a way, Ian's words were his. That was how he showed his anger. Was through his words. That was his release. Um, so that—that—that that, that was. Um, you, but then, then the following day, say I was writing with him after he'd been over the top and insulted people in a pub or at a gig, you know, and it had all gone off. The next day I'd go there, and but I'd, I'd never criticise him. I'd just say something like, "Well, oh, that was a, that wasn't that was that, that was a bit odd last night, wasn't it, Ian?" And I'd never actually say, "Man, you were out of order." I, I for some reason I put up with it. I was ten years younger than him, and um, I didn't quite know how to tame the beast you know i didn't know what, how to do it which is why i had to have time off with Ian. because ian if he'd been an able-bodied person i.e he didn't have polio he would have been a gang boss he, you know there's no doubt you know he, he he would have been yeah i mean like the cray twins that sort of you know like he 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 was in his mind the leader of a gang you know we were we were his gang and he, if he was mob-handed, he was powerful. But, and I was aware of this. I started to become more aware of it, and I didn't want to buy into it. I didn't want to buy, be this kind of... Because I'd co-created this, in, my, you know, in a way. I'd co-created it, but he was the guy everybody was looking at. Um, and he did say to me, now and again, hey, Chess, look, I know I'm getting all the... you know, Why don't you have March of this year and, and, and October, and uh, the rest of the time you can be working with me, you know? <laughs> no, nah. you know, I just, I said, so there were times, and in a lot of the videos, you don't see me, because um, I didn't want to be his slave, I could never do that, I could never just be that, you know, the underling, so to speak, I knew he was the front man, but um, I had other fish to fry, so to speak, particularly musically, you know, not everything fitted into the in doing the blockheads' domain style-wise, so I would um, take time off.
1: <laughs> well, one of your great early singles is A No Greeder." Tell us about the, the formation of that, and as well, um, was it was it Kenny Young the, the lyricist yeah, for that? Yeah. So, how what? Tell us about kind of the music element, and then how you got Kenny involved in the lyrics.
2: Okay. Um, so I was on tour with the Blockheads and um, we played in the, um, the Paradiso in Amsterdam, a great club. And after it, um, we were staying at the Hotel American and um, as luck would have it, I was in my hotel room and this lovely lady had sort of somehow <laughs> come back from the gig. I'd met her at the gig and she was in the room with me and, um, and in this delirious state... Uh, the melody for I Know Corrida floated into my head. Uh, And and, um, it was just a melody. And I I had my guitar, acoustic guitar, propped up against the wall. I went over to just check what key it was in. Right? E? Right? Okay, good. I I called Norman. (laughs) such a muso. I called Norman. What, right? Our bass player. Hey, Norman, you've got got to hear this. Then he comes to the room and I'm going, da, 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 da. And that was it, really. So that that was the birth of the melody. And... um, a few months later, I, I, had a, I have a friend called Pete Van Hook um, who um, was a drummer, and I went to school with him. Um, he actually mar- manages Paul Carrack these days. But back then, he was a drummer, and we used to play with Van Morrison and loads of other people. And uh, he said, um, I think I played him my melody. And he said, listen, I know this great lyricist, Kenny Young, who, who wrote um, Under the Boardwalk, amongst other songs. He's an American living in the Cotswolds, so he takes me up there, and um, I left him a cassette of just my da-da-da-da-da guitar and a bit of a, a la la melody. And a month or so later, I get a call from Kenny, who's in a music festival in the south of France, a music biz festival called Midem, and he and he says, "Hey, chance, I got, got, got a great lyric for your, you know, for your song." And I went, "Oh, great! What's well, so, it?" You know, he says, "Listen to this." He goes. I know Karida. That's where I am. I thought, what the hell? What's he what's he talking about? I had no idea. I thought Karida was a girl's name. But it it sounded odd. And then he starts telling me about this esoteric Japanese film. I don't know, does anybody know anything about I know Karida, the film? In the realm of the senses. It's it's um a true story about um in the 30s, in Japan, there was a geisha woman who was besotted with the madame's husband in, in his geisha house. But because of their different social rank, they could never have a relationship out in the open. This was an affair. But it was absolutely... Um, I mean, she was a nymphomaniac, and they could not get enough of sex, <laughs> basically. So, the, and this is a true story. So, at the end of this, the, uh, like, this, this torrid affair... Um, she she strangled him because they, um, you know, to intensify this sexual experience, she strangles him so that there's no cerebral input into this, this union they're having. It was a, I think it's something that's practiced by other people. I don't know too much about it. Anyway, she killed him. And um, as a memento, as it was, you know, as it were, she cut off his um, his manhood, and yeah, it's, I know, it's grisly, isn't it? Horrible. Anyway, so she tucks it in her kimono. <laughs> as you do. As you do. And um, she was wandering down the street and she was picked up by the Japanese old bill, the police, right? And, um, and she languished in prison for 30 years. Well, word got out that she was more, you know, like, this was a, a crime of passion. It wasn't, you know, and I suppose in a way you call it, would it be woman slaughter? Man, you know, you've got manslaughter. Anyway. Anyway. Um, she was released. And um, Oshima, the film director, who also directed Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, one of his other films, he made a film about her. And he called it Aino Corrida." There you go. And, yeah. and that, that is it. But just one little tale piece to this story is um, I was in doing some promo in Spain... A couple of months after I released my record and it's out there and I'm doing a bit of a TV promo, after a show that I was I did in Spain, I'm going up the stairs and a photographer puts his arm round me and a Spanish photographer he goes, "Ouchas, I love that record. It's fantastic. I hate bullfights."
3: <laughs>
2: right? And I and I went. Great, yeah. <laughs> and then I found out subsequently that in Spanish, I no corrida means there's no more bulls, yeah. right? <laughs> and I ah, ah, okay. So, um, you know, I had this innocent little melody you know, that, that was looking for a home, a lyric, and uh, that's where it ended up.
1: But it also ended up with uh, Quincy Jones because he did yeah, his own yeah, version yeah, of it, yeah, didn't he?
2: Yeah, 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 he did. So, um, Johnny Turnbull in the Blockheads, um, he, his girlfriend was working at AM Records. I'd got a record deal on the, on the, on the back of I Know Carida and another song, which was on my first album called Am I Honest With Myself Ready? It was just a, you know, an up-tempo kind of dancey riff and I Know Carida. And, um, so I'd recorded my, the original I Know Carida, and, um his girlfriend was working at A&M and she heard it, mine, and took it home. And um, um, they, they, had one of their friends was Rod Temperton who'd been working with um, Quincy. And Quincy Jones was on A&M Records and he was making his last record called The Dude. And um, so um, th- Rod Temperton played it to Quincy And they recorded it. And um, I remember the day that um, I heard his version. And um, it was quite extraordinary, really, because mine was eight and a half minutes long. I mean, that's as short as I could make it. And and his was like 345, the perfect single length. And, um, you know, he had that wonderful sound that Quincy Jones, you know, and his uh, Bruce Sweden, is it? That's his engineer. who Between them, they, well, they, they, you know, they had the best sound of all, really. And uh, oh, and Herbie Hancock was playing on it, and um, Louis Johnson was playing bass of the Johnson Brothers, and it was quite a moment, really. Um, and I think he had a—he he, got—he went to number twelve or some number eleven in the American charts with it. It, it was his first mainstream hit. Um, and I had a hit in <clears throat> Chile and um, Italy, I think. <laughs> but you know. Uh, hey, I got to meet Quincy, that was the greatest thing, and um, that led to something else, because I was sitting in his, his, sorry if I'm rambling on, but it's connected with I Know Carida. so I was sitting in his living room, in his lovely mansion in Bel Air, and uh, after about 45 seconds, 45 seconds, he says, hey, what sign are you, Chaz? And uh, so Aries, as so happens, and he, I think he was a Scorpio. But anyway, then he said, hey, what and I was with my manager. He said, hey, guys, what are you doing tomorrow night? And, I, and uh, we said, not a lot, really. He said, well, Michael's playing at the LA Forum. Michael's playing there. And we went, Michael, Michael, Ma- oh, yeah, Michael Jackson. Yeah, he said, you want to go? And we said, yeah, yeah. So we were invited to see Michael Jackson <laughs> the next night, right? My musical hero, as I pointed out earlier, was Sly Stone. And who's sitting right behind me <laughs> in the forum? I mean, I practically had a... My neck was... I had to keep going like that. Because I think he'd think I'm stalking him anyway. So he's sitting right behind. And I saw the Jacksons play this incredible gig. This is before Michael had uh, left the band, the, his brothers. And that was like the cherry on the cake. It was fantastic. And... Um, I met Quincy a couple of times after that, but that was it. That was our moment. That was our moment.
1: Well, let's uh, watch Quincy Jones' um, version Ooh. of "I Know Karida. <laughs> and and you continue to have uh, solo success because um, Gl- "Glad to Know You" was a big hit on the the club scene. And was it? Did you go to Studio Fifty Four as well in in that?
2: <laughs> part of... Um. I did go to Studio 54. Yeah, I did go to Studio... And, and um, Larry Levan was a big, very very famous DJ, very influential, and he was playing that song. Um, and I just... I mean, yeah, it was fantastic. But also he was playing B-52s, uh, Talking Heads, um, Chicago. He was somehow mixing all these tracks in with heavy disco, I suppose, really. Um, but the sound systems in those clubs in the early 80s was... Beyond, I mean, I'd never heard anything like it. There was sub-bass units everywhere you went. It was so loud. I mean, I could be sitting that We could be this close to each other. You could shout, and the other person wouldn't hear you. All you'd be feeling was the bass drum moving your chest muscles, you know. (laughs) You know, and that was it. Um, (laughs) One of the few memories I have, actually, I I was... it was a Saturday night and a lady from A&M had taken me down to, I think, it was probably Paradise Garage because there, there was 54 and there's Paradise Garage. They were the two big gigs. It was a Saturday night and I'd had a couple, couple of drinks and we were in the bar area of this club and I, I felt a bit weary so I thought, I'll just lean on this pillar. You know Well, you know, I thought it was a pillar and I just sort of leaned against it. But it turned out it was a 30-foot Christmas tree. right? <laughs> And this was like ninth, about ten o'clock on a Saturday Saturday evening, and just, suddenly this thing starts falling over, right? This huge tree, and I, I you know, I felt like going timber. You know, <laughs> I didn't. I sort of said, sort of, "Whoa!" I just had to move back, and this thing comes crashing down, and people all standing around. I thought, "I'm going, who did that?" You know, like, <laughs> like what the hell? <laughs> uh, that was one of my own, only memories of that night, actually. Or you know, my that was one of my New York experiences. <laughs>
1: So what what led you, um, I think you'll have to correct me, I think it Mm. might have been the late 1980s, to to move, base yourself in L.A. and Mm. and do film scores and film work?
2: Um, Yeah, so I'd been to L.A. quite a few times because I was signed to the American, you know, to the American label of A&M, and actually that was a... One time it had been Charlie Chaplin's film lot, so it was a big space, still had his film studios which they were now using as um for recording music so i'd been going there for quite a long time but uh, my sister annabelle is is a film director and i've done a couple of movies before that but she got a, a deal with touchstone to do a move a remake of a movie called doa dead on arrival with um with meg ryan and dennis quaid exactly And um, she asked me to do the score. She asked me to do the score for the music, for for the movie. So I went out there and I spent about three months cooking up the score. And uh, so um, that gave me a taste for living out there for longer than just the odd day, week, I'd been out there now and again to go and see the record label. And um, so one thing led to another. My parents were very got very ill in 86 I didn't want to abandon them whilst they were still in this world so to speak and when they passed I thought well now I'll go to LA and um, I pursued movies there really scores mainly it was quite a sketchy time Um, it didn't happen one movie after the other I remember doing um, a movie and then my agent out there said hey do you want to do Twins, which probably everyone must know that movie, but I said no, because I said, I've just, finished, I've just finished making a movie, doing the music for a movie, and that took about a year, and it's, it's full on. So I thought, I need a break, I can't do this. And that's what I've discovered through life, is if you want to be a, mo- a movie composer, you have to do it full time. You can't just hop in and hop off the bus, so to speak. You have to do it full time. But I, I, I thought, yeah, so I once again became the eclectic musician I am and, um, you know, sort of chose what I wanted to do. Um, but I did a, I did do quite a few, few movies. I did K2 with Frank Rodden, who'd made Quadrophenia. Um, I did another movie of his called um, War Party. Um Quite a few, I did quite a few, few movies, about 14 or 15, really. Towards my end of my time, so I was in L.A. from 86 to 92. I came back to England to do a couple of scores, the ones I've just mentioned, Killing Dead. And, and I also produced an, an artist in Belgium called Marie-Laure Barrault, who had an album called Turbo Go Doos Doos," <laughs> which not many people have heard, but it was a good record at the time. Um, that was in Brussels. So even though I was based in L.A. and I'd actually had a, the, the right visa and all that and I was renting a house, um, I did come back to England. And one, and, and I ended up, whilst, at my time in L.A., I was working with a Mexican DJ. That's where, I mean, so movies kind of died down a bit. And I ended up working with a <clears throat> Latino DJ. Um, and one day I'm sitting in his the back of a garage which was attached to the house of his parents. And he was the eighth child of this Latino family. And I was thinking to myself, what am I doing here? You know, it kind of felt weird. How have I ended up here in this little kind of dark room, downtown L.A.? Is this where I want to be? And um, I thought, no, I want to be... Actually, how it came to me, I had these thought bubbles, and the top thought bubble was was a chalet, a bit like you get on the Swiss cheese packets, you know, like like nothing more than that. I thought, well, that can't be Montana because I've never been to Montana. I think what that does to me is represents nature. It rep- rep- represents air, you know, and maybe Europe because, um, and I thought, right, that's it. I've got, I'm coming back. <laughs> as much as I love the aspects of living in America, and this was pre all the, you know, the, the stuff that's been going on in the last few years, this, you know, at that point it was still quite a quite a cool place to live, really, in a lot of respects. Having said that, I found it difficult to tap into um, to, to musicians. I found that everybody was guarding their sort of production groups, and you couldn't I couldn't find I found it quite difficult to f- to make connections actually. So there was that was another reason to come back to, to England, where <coughs> I already had. Very strong connections with Ian, with the band, and other and other musicians.
1: And and you were back writing and recording with Ian. Yeah. So
2: yeah. How,
1: how was it like that in 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 the '90s as opposed to the, the late '70s?
2: What to write in the '90s opposed yeah, to was, the '70s?
1: What was uh, was, was, was Ian? What was Ian like in in that period?
2: Um. Well, I think you'd have you'd drink and then you'd have a you'd have maybe have a night off then drink again you know like it wasn't I don't want to paint him out as being a, a drunkard, but he, you know he he couldn't really control it when he did he could get a bit sort of, um so um so what happened was we were in early nineties, and we got to this place, Ian and myself where he was in his place, his house wherever he was, I was in my place, and we weren't exactly calling each we weren't calling each other up saying hey listen to my latest lyric or listen to my latest tune, we'd kind of... We we had our patches, you know, we had our... We, we weren't communicating like we used to. Possibly because I'd been in L.A. for quite a few years and the friendship wasn't quite as close. However, um, one day he calls me up at this magic hour of six. I mean, I've got now this point, I've I'm living... Just off the Holloway Road in London, and I've rented a little a room about not about the same size as this, and I had all my musical equipment—pianos, guitars, amps, Hammond's—you name it, it's in there. And I'm sitting with a friend of ours, uh, of of Ian and myself, a great guitar player called Merlin, great name as well, Merlin. <laughs> and um, and the phone goes, and I pick it up, and it's six o'clock, and I can hear the clink of ice in the background. Oh hey, chairs, how's it going? Oh okay um hi in right and yeah uh, yeah 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 he said um so this is this is what's going on he said we've been offered a tour of um of, of the states um you know um um who was he t- uh, what's his name um do 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 do, do. what's his yeah, name reed. lou reed he said yeah supporting lou reed he said thank you it's supporting lou reed and um he said, but there's a problem here. He said, there's not a lot of money in it. He said, and we're going to have to share a room. And he said, the another thing is this, is I don't want you sloping off and seeing your uncle. And he, and I, I go, what, what, what the hell? And he keeps on ch- talking about him, and I'm trying to say as little as possible to give him the hint, I don't actually want to carry on with this conversation. And yeah. I, every 30 seconds I go, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right, then. all right. Put the phone down. And Merlin... And I'm sitting there in dis- disbelief. Anyway, this disbelief turned into absolute anger in me. And I got in touch with my solicitor and I said, I want you to write a letter to Ian and Mickey Gallagher and say, I never want to perform in this band again. I've had enough. I'm done, you know. For a start, I don't even have an uncle in LA. And um, and, and, and on top of that, I'm certainly not sharing a room with Ian, you know. So... Um, so he pens a letter to Ian, right, saying, Chaz has had it, he's not going to perform with the band anymore. And I'm sort of feeling quite, you know, fragile about this because you would do, you know, this is a guy. And um, a few days later, I'm in my room, it's like this, my, my studio, and Mickey Gallagher, the other keyboard player in the blockheads, comes through the door and he says, you know, he says, oh, hi, Chaz, he says, Ian got your letter. And I went, oh, God, yeah. He said, yeah. He said, and I said, your timing is not very good. And I said, why is that? He said, he's just been diagnosed with cancer. And I went, oh. Right. And he said, um, you know, um, and he wants to do gigs and he'd like to write with you. And I thought, why did I send that letter? You know, I couldn't, you know, say, let down a, a friend. I didn't, couldn't let him down. So we started writing together and we made a... Um, we made Mr. Love Pants, which is a great album we made together. And um, and f- so from diagnosis to passing, it was about five or six years for Ian. And I stayed with him all the time after that because, you know, you can't let down your friends like that. You know, he needed support. And sometimes one can overreact to things. But I, I, I'm one of these people who um, might not say anything at the time, cause, but then I will might have a, a very... Um, impetuous moment where I go fuck this you know and I'll, and I'll react you know what I mean would I, I, you might be the same you seem to be quite calm you know and passive but if someone really pushes oh, yeah.
1: you you my, know my, what I mean my daughter <laughs> I bet
2: we've all got up. you know the moment when we that's it you know you've crossed the line big
1: time and you know
2: and that was me I, I sort of yeah I'm the same
1: yeah because after Ian passed away, you had a, a, a jazz quartet and mm. Ian sort of encouraged you to, to sort of explore that side of, of your music, didn't he?
2: Yeah, he did. Yeah, I mean, like, the thing is, before I met Ian and round the early days of my relationship with Ian, I, I, my idea of jazz was kind of, I <laughs> like to say, it was, well, it was Latin jazz. I liked Latin jazz and that wasn't bebop. Ian being 10 years older, and um, um, he was part of the Beatnik, the Beatnik generation, and they loved jazz, you know, like, they loved jazz, you know, and so Ian, when I used to go over to his place, there'd be a pile of cassettes on one end of this trestle table, and Ian used to say to me, here, Chaz, pick a cassette, and he said, go to the back, not the front, go to the back of these, and there's this big sort of heap, heap of cassettes, and I'd pull one out, And nine times out of ten, it would be a jazz CD. And we'd pop it in the the machine. And uh, we'd listen to jazz. And it could be... It was heavyweight. It was like Lee Morgan, you know, uh, Miles Davis. um, um, You know, the the list was endless. Ornette Coleman. You know, there's so many people. Um, Bill Evans. He introduced me to Bill Evans. And when he passed... It sort of triggered this intense desire to, to get as much jazz as I could, and so I, there was a, a record shop near me, and I, as I approached it, I started sweating, so I knew I was going to part with quite a lot of money.
3: <laughs> and, and I did. I
2: used to come out with these CDs, you know, and uh, I'd play them. It could be anything from Duke Ellington to I don't know, and I accrued I, I, this great jazz collection, and um, yeah, and I pursued that and. A, a while after, this is early 2000s, Ian passed away in 2000, so about 2000, 2002, I put a little quartet together, and uh, the CD I made um, is actually here tonight, I bought a few copies of it, and um, it's called Out of the Blue, and um, I think we've got a song
1: from, is that, is that, is that Archie's lover, and Archie's it's, lover is it's just track. an amazing, amazing it's track, the first so tune, you definitely, definitely you to play we should play that. Thank you. Um, this this first half because every time I speak to you, there's someone that you've collaborated with or a connection <laughs> or a different style of music, and I thought it'd be fitting um, given that we had P.P. Arnold here uh, earlier this year that you, and you said that you, you'd worked with uh, Pat yeah. as well. Yeah, to yeah, tell did, us
2: about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, how did how because I'm trying to work out the connection here. So the drummer who's actually on that. Dylan Howe, his dad is Steve Howe, the, the yeah. great guitar player. He had worked with P. P. Arnold. I think that was how I came to meet her, right? So she came down and we we wrote a bunch of songs together, really some great songs. But for some reason, she's never released it. Um, oh. You know, nah, you know. And and really, I'm just going to force her hand on this one because um, there's some fantastic material there. Um, we did two gigs at the Jazz Cafe in Camden Town. Um, and uh, yeah, she's a force of nature. Really. Yeah. <laughs> great, great, great character.
1: Well, great. I think the second half will, will focus on um, your latest album and also we'll be getting some exclusive new tracks as well in that. So that's lucky, something to look forward to. Maybe I'll hand over to, to Rev to talk about the break and what's happening next.
2: I just want to say Archer's lover what you were just listening to is the is the opening track on out the blues cd there it's very right sort of kind of,
0: it looks it uh, looks and it sounds like it could have been made yeah. late 50 that wonderful era isn't yeah it? 1959 that year that changed jazz anyway <laughs> um let's have a round of applause for these two wonderful people <laughs>
1: So this section brings us right up to date and we'll be hearing some some tracks from uh, Chaz's uh, latest album as well as some exclusives, which is very exciting. I mean, it's definitely worth mentioning The Submarine has surfaced because that's the album that you made about 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. So that... The that's soon- that
2: one that nobody wanted. That one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one. Not bad, though.
1: Pretty good. But there <laughs> seems to be a, a little bit of a thread from that album yeah. to, to flow as well in that there are elements of, of, sort of yeah. club and house as well as the, yeah. the, the, the funkier side. Yeah.
2: Um, <clears throat> I'm an eclectic musician. And um, I, I think I said pretty early on, as a teenager, what really blew my mind was soul music, really. That's what did it. And... Um, and as we know, at that point, actually late 70s, dance music was seen as a bit of a dirty word. I mean, it still wasn't mainstream. Look at it today. I mean, I'm sure anybody who's got a, a child, you know, has they've gone to a rave at some point, you know, and um, it's part of our culture now. And in a way, it all goes back to Africa, I suppose. In a way, you know, way before we, you know, it's in our DNA, rhythm. And I, actually, the amazing thing is that. <clears throat> rhythm and melody transcends language because language is very explicit to that country but rhythm and melody you know is is universal i mean we, you know it's global let's forget about universal It's just global we, we can all get into it and um that record the submarine has surfaced um i think was on that tip i mean left to my own devices um I think I'm also um, let me put it like this. Sorry to sort of go from one from pillar to post, but I grew up when, in in an age when technology was allowing me to sort of do a lot of things on my own. Um, you know, like digital technology allowed me to you know put beats together, drums together, and with a very convincing sound. You couldn't really do that in the in the 70s. It, it just got better and better, and so I would construct music a lot on my own and um and then just maybe find great singers to sit on top of it um and that's really what I was doing on that album the submarine has surfaced i'm using i'm working with six different singers, each of whom is is really talented in their own way and uh that was it and I did one gig to promote to promote that album at the jazz cafe in london and um I lost about fifteen hundred quid. On it But it, it was it was worth doing. Oh, I got oh that's right. I also got another souvenir, which was a frozen shoulder, because I was carrying so much gear. I was so wanted to be a good gig. Um, I, I all for for the rehearsals. I must have done endless amount of rehearsal. You know, carrying keyboards, microphones, guitars, amps, you name it. I was carrying it, and I thought I just wanted to prove to myself I could do it. Um, because playing with the Blockheads all these years, we've been so fortunate with Ian and the Blockheads that audiences seem to go nuts every time. We've never had a, a gig where it's been sort of... You know, that they, they just have really embraced it. And I don't know whether I've had the same confidence necessarily with my own stuff. Um, and I don't know where that comes from. I think it's... Ego can work in two ways. Ego can make you feel fantastic, you think you're the best in the crowd, and also they can say, no, you're not. So really, we have to get rid of ego and just go beyond that and just um, be yourself. And just like tonight, you know, if you speak the truth, people will listen, and that's all it is, really. And so that, but I think what happens with me is I I sort of leapfrog from one, whatever I'm doing, which I give 100% of uh, to a composition as I'm doing it. But then I move on. And so in a way, I have to be sort of supportive of these compositions. going, hey, what about me, you know? Um, And um, what I've learned is you don't put all your eggs in one basket. So it's okay being eclectic, but don't put all your eggs in one basket. And I think you'll hear, like in this portion of of this evening, that um, the different aspects, the different kind of areas of music I'm into which aren't all jazz, it, it, you know, they, they, they kind of, they transcend genres. I think I'm a, in a way I'm a hybrid musician that I've been very, very lucky because um, I'd never recommend this to a young musician to, to take my route. I've just been very, very fortunate um, to be able to do that probably through, um, you know, my royalties has given me that space to be able to um, be creative. But I think these days, it's one has to really be more niche. You have to find, where do I sit in this whole world of music? But um, <laughs> I've somehow managed just to, you know, to sort of transcend that, just to do what I want to do. Um,
1: And so moving on to your new album and, and listening to one of the, the first singles from mm. that, and that's Bodies Without a Soul, it seems to set a scene, certainly lyrically, where mm. it's got some of the musical feel that you, that, w- that we, we hear on the submarine surface to a certain extent, but the lyrics seem to reflect the world mm. around us, which is kind of turbulent, but then there's an element of inner calm at, at times as well. But,
2: yeah, I, you, Jason's referring to my new album, which yeah, is Flo. actually, it's called Flow, and um, it was inspired actually by a um, a book I read by a hung, Hungarian um, psych, psychologist, and he'd interviewed, it's a great book, I thoroughly recommend it, you, you'll find it online, called Flow, and um, what he did in his research was he he interviewed hundreds of people, and he wanted to find out when they were at their happiest. And it turned out that when you're in the flow, when you're just in the middle of doing something, you're happiest. And it could be, you know, um, you could be an athlete training, you could be a musician, you could be a physician, you could be all these kind of things. But people, when they're in the flow, are at their happiest. Um, and it was an important thing for me to remember because if you're recording like I am a lot of time. One part of you might be thinking too much about the end result rather than living right in the moment. And um, it allows you to flow more. And I think I, I'm going to paraphrase his last sentence because I can't remember exactly what he said. But in his book, he ends up by saying, if you combine your flow with, a, with, with the flow of um, in a positive way with the, um, the energy of the planet, then you're doing the right thing. So if you can do it in a, and be of service to the planet, to people, you couldn't live a better life. And so that's what inspired it, because there's so much negativity that's presented to us, particularly by mainstream media all the time, and the fear and you know, all that and lies, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's a place. Within us, which is untouchable from that. it's peace. It's quiet. It's silent. And I, and I, and I think that place we can all go to and just feel free. You 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 no longer subject to these these negative energies. And um, I think that's what I was trying to express on this record. Um, that's something I've really felt. I mean, it's. Some people call it meditation. I don't know. You know, I think you can feel it if you just go into nature. Um, you know, you often feel this... You feel great. But trees don't say to you, well, you feel great because of this. But they're actually giving out chemicals. as a reason your, your body is feeling great, you know, and you just feel relaxed. And, and I think that's... I'm not there all the time by any means, but I'm, I'm aware of that, just to stop thinking. And you'll go to that deep place that we all have within us that um, is calm. It's calm. And I think from there, that's a good place to activate your energy from. Because you're bound to make better decisions if, if, that's, your, if that's the bed of your, you know, the kind of your default position. If that's your default, then you're going to have a good day.
1: Well, let's hear um, uh, some of Bodies Without a Soul from your latest album, Flow (laughs) Chess.
2: That's the first time I've heard it in a room. The only time I've ever heard it was in my studio. And that, that's great to hear it out. It works, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. I, doubt, I doubted it for one time because I played it in my car and it didn't sound quite right. And I thought, hmm, but now I've heard it tonight, it sounds great and thank you. Because that song means a lot to me. I, th- I felt it was... Um, I'd said what I wanted to say, you know.
1: Yeah. So in terms of producing mm. uh, the album Floor, mm. that... There seems to be an underpinning where you're recording material in, in, in the studio, your home studio, mm. but then you, you also collaborate with other artists and musicians. So who who featured on the album as well as yourself? Um, well, um, there
2: are different artists. I don't have a copy of that record with me tonight. I don't have any CDs. It's only online at the moment, but I'll try and make some CDs of it. Um, the uh, Who's on it? Well, there's... Um, there's a singer called Andy Kane who's in it. He's a great, great singer. He, he he he's a I'd say he's more of a session singer, but he's singing um we wrote a song together. There's a girl on that song, we've just heard Bodies Without a Soul, Cherry Cameron. I've worked with her before. And she's also working on another song on this album called Move Into the Light. Um she's singing on that. Um, there's a great singer on it actually called Melody Palmer, who um he um Meet me. he's singing a song that we co-wrote called Meet Me in the Middle. Um, who else is on it? Oh, the sax player, um, Dave Lewis. Um, we heard him earlier on. What did we hear him on? Something. But he, he plays the blockades. Oh, that's right. He's on that the track that we've heard the jazz album I made. Um, he's playing tenor sax on that, Dave Lewis. So he's also on my new album, Flow. Um, loads of people. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because one of the other uh, singles off the album, and one of my favourites, is also Water. And that's, that's interesting yeah. because you seem to touch on themes of the environment, but then there's there's kind of extra meanings to that because water can be soothing as well, so there's, there's different dimensions.
2: Yeah. I mean, anybody who's taken a shower, <laughs> which is probably most of us, right? Nearly everybody would have thought, um, would have experienced this amazing feeling of... <sighs> when you have a shower you know so i was just thinking one day you know what about the sound of it is actually very soothing um also just we often think that you have to internalize and, and maybe sort of do what we've just been talking about meditate so to speak so to speak to um find your inner peace but also it can come from outside you might water just on your body is a healer you know it, it, you know um and i think that's what I was referring to water is the opening track on this album yeah
1: well let, let's say a, a bit of a clip of it then and the final song it'd be great to to ask you about from Flo is is believing because that comes back to some of the themes that you Ooh. talked about when yeah. you were you were covering the album which is a, about kind of I don't know, having that inner strength or inner belief from a, you yeah. know, as as yeah
2: you know it's funny because <clears throat> I worked on a movie a little while ago and the director, I sent it to the director thinking that he might really get into it, might, wa- might want to make a video of this song, Believing. And he's thought belief is a very dangerous thing, you know. And I think he was talking about when you just believe something because it's put in front of you in a convincing manner, like propaganda. But I wasn't saying that. I was saying, believe in yourself. You know, there's another kind of belief. You know, it's like, there's only one of you, there's only one of you, and every person in this room, we have one shot, you know, in this life, and, as I expressed earlier, I don't always follow, that, that,
3: you know,
2: my own advice, or my own beliefs, but that's what I'm aiming towards, you know, it's like, if you saw somebody who, was, depressed, or, um, had lost their way, you'd want to encourage them, that's all it is, you know, and, I think when we fear our, feel our finest, we're at one, we, you know, I mean, I'm, I, um, I'm, a, this is how I feel, is that light, when you wake up in the morning, you see the light, that's it, that's why you feel great, and I, I've come up with this expression for myself, is don't squander it, don't squander the light, because that's why we're here, you know, it's the it's the first thing we see in the morning, and then when it starts to fade, we, you know, yeah, we go into the into a dark space and it's nice and cosy. But it's the light that get the, that we need, this whole, you know, without the sun, we wouldn't be here. So light's so important. I think that I can't see in people's brains in this room, but I'm sure a major part of it is light that's kind of, you know, is cerebral. It's kind of, it's almost like it's the, it's the thing we don't often talk about that's actually in our brains. We often talk about the neurons and this and that, but light, I think, is what... Is, is is definitely in there, you know, and so it's a kind of like um, it's within us, it's without us, outside of us. But I'm not sure whether there's a difference between it, actually. I think it might actually be cont- a continuity between it, between what's in us inside us, and what we see outside of us. It's, it's a complex thing, but anyway, light is very, very important, and I think that's what I'm saying. In, I've always been drawn more to optimism, anyway, than, than, than negativity. And um, there's a lot of humorists who can be very satirical, but you go, yeah, but, but, you know, what else? You know, I know a lot of people who kind of... They think they're being funny by being very, very cynical about something, but then you think, yeah, but what else? Is that it? You know, is that it? You've now said there ain't no chance of change. Um, and I do find that with some people, they dig their heels in and they think, um, that's their identity. Their opinion is their identity and therefore they're not going to budget. That's it. They're like become concrete. And I think it's very, very important just to be open-minded. Everybody's opinion in this room is, is as valid as each other's, but I think we have to sort of connect, um, you know, um. Rather than just saying no, I'm right about this. And um, but that's everybody's right to have belief, and you know, and and, um, and we might be sh- and to shift is a good thing. I think it just to shift and to move, not be fixed, is a very healthy thing to be. But um, it's, it is an is it's an honour in a way to be on this earth. I think, you know, and every now and again we get these glimpses, oh my God, this is pretty incredible and I know there's people messing it up for us, but in the meantime, you know, they're, they're, it's pretty extraordinary, it's phenomenal, really, what the, the chance we've been given.
1: Well, let's say you uh, So we've got some more Cat Club exclusives in terms of uh, new material that you're working on, Chaz, and another shift in style. And uh, again, the quality is quite incredible. And and this time it's, would you describe it as a bit more classical in in genre?
2: Yeah, I mean, I suppose what you're referring to is like, there's two albums I've made recently. Um, I've just only bought an excerpt from, one excerpt from both albums. And basically, I, um, I hooked up with a, a brilliant cellist um, called Frank Schaefer. He's a freelance musician, and um, he works a lot at air studios in London where they do a lot of film soundtracks. Apparently, he's worked on over 600 movies, um, all the Bond movies. Um, he worked on the Joni Mitchell albums. And anyway, I had the good, good fortune of working with him, and we put an album together... And um, I brought with me the opening track, which I've called Notes of Bergamot, which um, I find it quite humorous because I was with my eldest son, who actually lives in Oslo, and we were just doing a kind of quick shop at Wilco, the local Wilco, and just would add, practically the cash at the cash um, the, on the way out. And he went back and grabbed a bottle of um, shampoo. And... Um, its head with notes of zesty bergamot on it, right? <laughs> and I, I was, <laughs> so when he went back to Oslo, he left this shampoo in, in, in the shower tray, and I thought, what is this note? and I'll tell you what, it's phenomenal. Bergamot is what I think one of my pa- favorite scents now is fantastic. Scent. Oh. You know, we haven't even mentioned scent tonight, but that can really be very uplifting as well. So anyway, so um, I was searching for a title of this tune. I thought notes of Bergamot, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, so that that's the opening track from the album I made with Frank Schaefer, this I believe brilliant uh, cellist. And then I made another album with a a man called Simon Heath, who actually lives in Edinburgh, but he plays the Duduk. He plays the Duduk, which is um. For those who don't know, I know I didn't know, actually, really, but it sounded great when I was introduced to him. Um, it's an Armenian um, instrument, a bit like a clarinet, but it's Armenian. And uh, so we set our b- out, and to be honest, everything has gone backwards and forwards as files, audio files. I've, I've met him once, but we made an, an album. That's the, the phenomenal thing about the age we're living in right now as musicians. And it actually, during lockdown... It actually worked you works. Know, we could still keep working, and um, I was actually saying to my wife today on the way up here, you know, isn't it incredible how quickly we can communicate with people across the, the other side of the world, but how slowly it takes to get on the on the motorway? How you know, just to get from A to B physically, it's it's we it it hasn't caught up, has it? You know, but um and, you know, we can communicate so quickly on the internet to people. I was actually um, doing a show for this an argentinian an Argentinian dj who was having his four hundredth show called Discarama and um, you know he played some of my new music and um, you know and we 'd be chatting back and support i 've never met him, but you know we, on online we just sort of, we did a, um, a zoom and um, and that 's when i mean you can talk so quickly to somebody you know communicate but d- driving up the m one is not exactly the same is it It takes a long time but Maybe it's a reminder of, you know, uh, our physicality, um, you know, as well. Um, so, yeah, that's it really, basically. I've made two albums, um, one with Simon Heath, the Duke player, and one with Frank Schaefer, cellist.
1: Yeah. Should we uh, play uh, clips from those two tracks, one after the other? So we've got Notes of Bergamot and then um, A Man's Life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What?
2: On, on, on the second track we're going to hear, I've actually got this is the one track where I got both musicians to play on the same piece of music. <laughs> looking.
0: I'm going to ask the first question if, uh, if, if that's all right. It's my prerogative. <laughs> so, for those uh, who don't know, or uh, who are too young to remember, there was a, a, an Egyptian actor called Omar Sharif who was in uh, Dr. Shivago, Lawrence of Arabia, statuesque playboy, bridge champion, I believe, of the world or whatever. Um, oh. Very charismatic figure. and always had a beautiful woman on his hand. So, jazz is going to tell us now what happened between... Oh,
2: my God. Omar <laughs> Sharif oh and my Ian Jury. Okay. And he, he was there. Uh, I wasn't there in person, but oh, this is, okay. I, I can tell you what I heard. Yeah. You know, yeah. So Ian happened to be eating with Pete, Sir Peter Blake, actually, and Norman Wattright, at a table in a restaurant. And Omar Sharif was sitting over the other side of the restaurant with his, a, a female companion. Well, Ian happened to have gone to art school with this woman, right? And he spots her over the other side of the restaurant. And he, he gets up and he bowls over there and sits himself down right uninvited he, he sits himself down to next to this woman and starts chatting away to her well omar looks over and goes get well, who who are you you know and says to ian you know he says well i went to you know i went to art school with with, with your your lady here and he says and then ian says because he's feeling the wrath of you know omar and he, and and he says um to omar he says I didn't like any of the movies you ever made. I think you're shit. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good good opening line, isn't it? So Omar, right, not wanting to sort of, you know, look like he was a, like a walkover. He said, I don't care what you think. And he went to punch him. He, he punched Ian, right? And And meanwhile, Ian's party, back at the other table, saw what was going on. And they rushed over to Omar, who was about to land another punch on Ian, right? And Norman Wattright, as legend has it, grabbed Omar from behind, right? <laughs> and restrained him. Um, and that is... Um, there's, there's a, did you ever see that picture? There's a, in a fanzine. Yeah, I tried. It was like a kind of... Um, I tried to
0: download it, but its quality is so bad. But,
2: oh my yeah. God. So somebody has painted this moment, <laughs> but in neo-realism. I mean, I'm, I saw it once. It's great. This moment when Omar and Ian, like we're in this, like fighting. Um, and Norman comes to the rescue. I think it is in in that painting as well, That picture is brilliant picture, but that's apparently what went down. And, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. They had to be pulled apart, I think, you know, and Ian was restrained, taken back to his table and, and told us, sit, don't you go anywhere.
0: <laughs> well, had a uh, drink being taken? Oh,
2: well, I did mention that earlier, yeah. yeah. I don't know, yeah. Jazz. Um, really love the tracks while
0: we listened to from Flo just then. It, it has a very contemporary feel to it. It's I, I, sort of the, the, the sound of it, it reminded me of Pharrell, N.E.R.D., mm. Basement Jack slightly. Mm. Where do you draw the point at sounding too contemporary and using autotune or mm. any of the, the usual sort of studio trickery? What, what we have
2: nowadays, which yeah. annoys the fuck out of me. <laughs> okay, okay, all right, okay, okay. Hmm. It's a good question, actually. Um, I think there's legi- legitimacy in what you're saying. And, um, but sometimes, if you don't have the means to be able to record m- m- musicians in your room... You just go ahead and do things yourself. And that's the position I've been in sometimes myself, which is um, I can draw up a sketch pretty pretty quickly, but and it will be very kind of accurate. I'll always try and put in sort of live elements so it doesn't sound... Um, like um you know it's just repeating itself endlessly on a loop so like for example but what, what i will do is try to tidy stuff up a bit because a recording recording is is artificial when all is said and done you're trying to create the best painting possible i mean even with my jazz stuff you know i wanted it to be absolutely in the pocket i wouldn't want something to go out to the public that i didn't actually feel was the best i can present when you hear musicians playing live, you know, like they are living right in the moment and it's a dangerous place to be. However, you know, you get what you get. And I admire musicians so much for doing that. But when you're in a studio, even, um, you know, classical orchestra or whoever you are, you just want it to be absolutely as great as it can be. But I get your point. I think if you could get a bunch of musicians in a studio and do it live, you can't get better than that. That is that is the, the best thing you can do. But it's not always possible. Sometimes musicians charge a lot of money as well. <laughs> that's, a, that, that's something else to throw into the pot. Yeah. You know, and... Well... Th- that's obviously why... Sometimes we work the way we do because it's just too expensive to, you know, to employ musicians all the time. But um, I do take your point and I, I agree. And that's, when you hear a band playing live, I mean, that is as good as it gets. If they're on the, having a good evening, that is, you know, and that dynamic range is phenomenal. I mean, I feel it when I play with the blockheads. It's incredible, that dynamic range. You never have that on a record, you know, it's harder you might be able to capture magic performances if, you know... I mean, we know that with Miles Davis and, you know, certain people just have captured iconic performances. Yeah. But you have to be really at the peak of your game to be able to do that. You didn't mention drugs (laughs) or sex or rock and roll?
0: (laughs) Anybody else? Simon. Ah, Simon and pass it on to uh, our good friend here.
2: I'll just start by saying I think what you're saying about... um, Belief and propaganda is really on the on you know on the nail because that's how people like Donald Trump got where he is and Nigel Farage etc. They don't change.
3: No.
2: Anyway, back to reality. Um, have you have you ever watched Jimmy Dore on YouTube? No. You should check him out because G- he talks the truth. Jimmy Dore. How, do, on how do you spell the D O R E. Right. Okay. And you know, like I can't watch mainstream tv i just don't believe a word they're saying so and uh, anyway so yeah i I look a lot of YouTube. some great people uh, redacted it's a great um show where they they tell the truth basically Mm. you'd never see it on mainstream anymore i'll look into that thank you yeah um i was i was going to ask um what did you think of the film sex and drugs and rock and roll were were you a consultant on that well i was interviewed for the film um, but it it doesn't really tell the story like it should have been told um, the Blockheads can't even talk about the film, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. I um, don't like it. Yeah, because um, there was somebody who was key to Ian's life, who, who was kind of sidelined. He wasn't even in it. Fred Rowe was Ian's minder. And the guy that is featured in it is a guy called the Sulfate Strangler, who, who was um, another minder of Ian, but he came on later in the show. So, and the Blockheads themselves really weren't fe- featured I got a, you know a, you know someone played me, but the band really didn't feature. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, it was a, it would have been an incredibly difficult movie to make anyway because the funniest moments never get filmed or recorded. They're in when the band are travelling along, you know, and somebody will just say something. Somebody will re- say something after that, and we'll all crack up. And um, it's that group banter. Yeah. That was missing in that film, really. The off the record kind of stuff that, yeah. that you want to really. What, what did you miss? think of Andy Serkis as, as Ian? I think he did great as, yeah. as an actor. He did fantastic. He studied one gig of Ian's over and over and over again, and um, that's what he did. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Strangely, this is
0: not the question I was going to ask, but strangely, I knew Spider's son, Fred. Oh. And I didn't know he was Spider's son until one night we were talking about me being in a band and he said something about Spider and my jaw just dropped. What? I've known him for years and I didn't know well, that he was well, spider's, spider's son. you know
2: Spider's not very well, is he?
0: No. Fred very, died just uh, a, a few weeks ago. He died? Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. And yeah. um, What I was going to ask was Bodies Without a Soul. Yeah. Um, when you were talking there about contemporary, that sounded to me very Brothers Johnson... Uh-huh. So, going back to your Sly Stone, was wow. that...
2: Wow, yeah. Did you think that was...
0: Did you mean it, or was it just... Um, it was there?
2: You know, I don't think any artist is free of influence. You know, we live the age we do. Um, but what I do try and do is mix it up. So, I'm, I'm, if I think I'm copying anybody, I'd stop. I'd quit.
0: I didn't mean it in a bad way. No, no, it's no, like it's okay. It's but I, I get your point. But the same.
2: moment, I see, think I'm, I'm a facsimile of anybody... I quit because what's the point, you know? So it has to have your own spices in it.
0: But it have that groove? It have that. Yeah, well, you know,
2: rhythm is universal. No one owns it, you know. The,
3: you know, a, beat, a beat's going recognized.
2: on. It's just, it's like a train. You either hop on it or or not. You know, yeah. it's always there, rhythm. You know, um, and that's all I'm doing is just connecting with it, really. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
4: yeah. Hi, Chaz. Hello. I really want to know what a pig snout shoe looks like.
3: <laughs>
4: really? Yeah, what are they? Does anyone else know what a pig snout
2: shoe looks like? Yeah, they're kind of like that. They 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 sort of like have a <laughs> they're
4: They they not had particularly a phase attractive. in the seventies, didn't they? <laughs> yeah they did. Yeah. I remember that. The Cornish Birsty yeah. Shoe, thank you.
2: Yeah. Thank yeah, you. Yeah.
4: And can I also say I love your album cover for Flo? Thank you. Um,
2: I don't know where is it. Um, well, what, oh, um, it's gone. yeah. What it is is I got obsessed with working with felt tip pens. I shouldn't admit it because it's not really. What's the word? It's not really legit, is it? I mean. However, um, yeah, and I just, um, and I was trying to come up with something that re- represented flow, like a kind of. So you drew that. Yeah. Yeah, I and I've got I did tons of them. I mean, over about a six-month period, I couldn't get enough of it. You know, I was buying tons of felt tips. Um, yeah, and originally it was like um, it was that way. It was like it wasn't vertical; it was horizontal. But the graphic designer I work with on a lot of my stuff, um, Dylan Martin, um, he just tipped it vertically. He tipped it vertically, and there it is
4: lovely it's like a dopamine hit of color isn't it which suits with the whole feel good and connect with nature yeah i'm
2: I'm particularly drawn i don't know if you are particularly colors are the what colors do you really like um pink and orange and red yeah pink orange and red Mm, so they they bite with each other don't they and and i love that you know i mean I'm, i'm take tons of Photographs of flowers, but I always try and get one in front of the other. Like it, it it could be an an orange flower with a pink something behind it. I never just take one on its own. It has to be that bite between the colours, and you know.
4: And one final question. Yeah. Can you dance? Pardon. (laughs) Can you dance? I'm I'm just really curious because your music is so dancey. Yeah. And you start. uh, One of my favourite running tracks is hit with your. Rhythm sick, yeah. and it's all about rhythm. dance being an international, well, yeah. beyond international, yeah. just a, an instinct that all humans have around the world, yeah. regardless of yeah. of culture and creed or anything, yeah. Yeah. that we have it in us to respond to the beat. And yeah. Because your music is so mm. dancey, mm. I just wondered if you, would, if you were. What you always dance. If you had now. rhythm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that, is that so, an
3: invitation?
2: Yeah. <laughs> 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 no, uh, yeah, I mean. Yes, you have it. You know, <laughs> I, yeah, if yeah. you find it... Yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. yeah okay. I, I do, but, I mean, I should dance more because I've had problems with my knees of late, and I think it's because I'm not getting enough exercise, right? Okay. So, yeah, um, Get yeah, yeah. I, uh, that's it, you know, I mean, when we are younger, we, we have no problem with it, do we? But then somehow we, we sort of lose... No,
4: the... I could do that Rasputin thing, and I don't know what's gone wrong, I can't do it anymore. The, yeah. the, the, the bony everything.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
4: It's quite a struggle
2: it's very exhilarating when you yeah. when you dance isn't it yeah so yeah <laughs> sorry I like that I think
0: you should I think um, I think I think Amanda should have her own show
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: you did brilliant to go from colors to dancing it? talking of colors I um, when when new boots and panties come out and, and I love I've always loved Jean Vincent since I found me B Bopaloolah 78 in my sister's bedroom, and um, so I love the track and I love the line, "Shall I mourn your decline with some thunderbird wine and the black handkerchief?" And I still do it. And I went out and I dyed all my handkerchiefs black. <laughs> Is
2: the dye still coming off? <laughs>
0: I do it now, and I started drinking Thunderbird wine, and they used to sell it in Tesco's. it was blue and red labels. Oof. All wankers! Bowery used to drink it in in New York when I was 1976. And so I started drinking that, and um, this is all down, cos of you and Ian jury obviously. <laughs> but I found it went very well with uh, my am- amphetamine habit that I had. <laughs> at- <laughs> <laughs> that I had at the time, but anyway, thanks, so thanks a lot for that, mate.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: any, any more questions? We've got the thing probably got time for one more. Judith, yes, is it, it? You've got to use to uh, the microphone. Maybe. All right,
4: it's just a comment following Amanda's one about dancing, the track with the cello. Yeah,
1: I could envisage a.
2: Choreographer, really, really enjoying that. Some do,
4: you, mo- do you know anybody? No. I, no. no, but I think you know. Huh? Do you know one?
2: Do I know a one? good
4: choreographer? Because I'm sure they'd love to work with
2: that. Yeah, you know, um, I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think so. I mean, I could... that piece is very special to me. I don't know why. There's something very unique about it, and maybe I'd like to think, you know, maybe so a couple of hundred years time. You know, yeah. when I'm no longer to sort of able to... Well, I'm not here. Um, that song will... That piece will still be around, you know.
1: Yeah, because I can that's, just
2: I th- see it. it I think it's... Yeah. Um, it. I don't know where the chords came from. Suddenly my hands just landed on the piano. And I thought, wow. I mean, yeah, I've never played anything quite like that. Mm. But I agree. As you've noticed, although we've talked a lot about rhythm, I'm, I'm equally intrigued by melody. And just the flow, you know, I mean, I'm not just set, you know, I'm just not, I think when I was younger, I was much more intensely involved in rhythm and the physicality, but I'm equally interested in just colour and tone, just like, in a way, like the the album cover that was up here a moment ago, that I just see that as a, another finger on the same hand, you know, painting and music, they're very, very similar. You know, like cold colours with hot colours. And that's what we're doing in music a lot of the time, putting a very soft colour and you put something hard against it and you get this yin and yang, you know. It will be available soon. That's going to be the the, the opening track with Frank Schaefer, the cellist. And I think the album's going to be called Awakening um, because there is a piece on it which is called Awakening. And um, it's just very... It is pretty mellow, but um, Frank, um, the cellist, is... You know he, he's very accurate and, and and very emotional, which is a joy for me to you know because um, being a guitar player and a pian- pianist, they're beautiful instruments, but they don't have sustain. A cello does, a violin does, you know, and so when you, as from my point of view, work with somebody who has a voice like that, it's like ah, oh, the, the heavens have opened because you now have something which just can go on forever, you know, and it's just in completion, I would say that um, Mac, Max Brook's, Br- Max Brook, his violin concerto is probably my favourite piece of all time, Max Brook, and it's just very, very simple, it's the Nadagio in the middle of it, and it, it's just played on a violin, and it's so moving, so... I would say that just very simple but beautifully played melody is probably the most important thing to me, really. You know, now and again, I'll hear a piece by Beethoven, um, or, you know, but this piece by Max Brook, his violin concerto, for me, is that height. So I don't try and... I know the greatest music has already been made, and so there's no point being competitive. What you could do is just got to find a connection with that, with that wave i suppose
1: i don't know how to top any of this this is the broadest range of musical styles that has, you know consistently am, am, amazing the number of themes we've kind of been into philosophy everything mm. um i think there's only one person that could do that and, oh. it, and it's you well, so well uh, i can well rev will do the thank yous but from myself it's just been an honor and privilege thanks, to, to you. spend time thank with you,
2: you very much for listening to me thank you <laughs> thanks reverend this has it's been a great evening because um I don't think I've ever done this before you know I actually had the chance just to talk about the oh, journey yeah. I've been in and it's been great thanks Reb. Thank welcome. You. Thanks,
0: Rev. we, thank you we haven't much. quite uh... I'll, I'll do the thank yous just after this burst of the um, world exclusive. Tell them what it is uh, very briefly, uh, Charles, if you will. It's not
2: a big deal, Rev. All it is, all it is. It is, is to it, us. It, well, it is. But you know, like I'm still a little bit concerned about the gentleman who's behind you. Is he gone? He's gone. He's gone. Yeah, oh, yeah. It doesn't matter then. No, I won't worry about him because yeah, as I, I do work with beats and that kind of thing. My both my sons are DJs. And yes, I am influenced by what they're doing, but I think it's cool. I love what some of the youth are making, and I don't think we should just get caught, oh, you can only do it this way, or you can only do it that way. I think we have to be open. And that's all I am, really, and I try to do the best thing at the time. And, you know, and that's it, really. Um, so this new last piece is basically just a rework, but a dance version of um, I Know Corrida, but not, but 23 style, 2023 20, style. Hey, well, where's, where, where's the uh, glitter ball? <laughs> and this is the last thing I've been working on. I was actually putting this together yesterday, so it's, like, it's still work in progress. Work in progress. World exclusive. <laughs> oh, my God. He Should he get some dance? What did he do?
0: them stick is the wonderfully titled there ain't have been some clever bastards (laughs) we we've had one with us tonight Charles Jenkel good night God bless you and happy trails. (laughs) Trails. trails